0: My favorite all-time car chase scene is from the movie Born Identity, the first of the Born series movies. Like that car scene, because he hops in this uh, uh, old-school Mini Cooper that's not his own, does kind of a little like mental check Reminds himself the tires feel a little bit splashy, whatever. And uh, calculates his next move as uh, along with his passenger. And as the police from Paris come down upon them, he just takes off and rips, right? Just blasts through the streets. And I get so into it when I watch it. Like, he's, it's a Mini Cooper. So he's blasting down staircases and, like, through alleys and everywhere that a Mini Cooper was not meant to go. And he, like, and he just you know, he's being chased by motorcycle cops and they're flipping off their bikes and it's just like mayhem. And yeah, it's like perfectly executed and he's flying through and it's just like, I just love that. It gives me so, when I watch, it's like it takes me to a different place. Like I'm so in the moment that when I watch this car chase scene, it doesn't matter that I've watched this car chase scene 10,000 times, I'm sure. Like when I'm in watching it, I'm freaking out. And I'm like rooting for him. I'm like, come on, Jesus! No, like shift, double shift. Come on. Like I'm just like making sure like I want him to make it. And I'm, I'm worried about whether well, these police are going to catch him or not. But I, if I just take a step back, right, like if I just pause for just a second, I can stop biting my nails and lower my heart rate, and recognize that I know exactly how this car chase scene ends. I've seen it. I can literally recite word for word the dialogue that happens during it. Like, I know what's going on. I know how this thing ends. But it doesn't matter when I watch it. I'm in it. I'm absorbed. And I forget all of that. I'm just like, I rise to the intensity of the moment. And I panic when they panic. And I'm stressed when they're stressed. But I love that. But the truth is, here's what what I do also. Like, it doesn't just happen for me in movies. I do this in life too, where I, when things get crazy or when things are happening that I don't understand or things get stressful or pressure mounts, I lose perspective and I panic, right? I get absorbed in the moment and I, I get very worried. I get stressed out and I get focused on the minutia and what's wrong and I lose the bigger perspective of what's going on. But Jude does the thing here as he's talking to us about false teachers. He brings us back into perspective. That when the church comes under attack, when we come under attack, it's very easy to panic, to freak out, to worry. But Jude wants us to step back and realize something much bigger here. There's a bigger picture, and we know, and we've been told a thousand times exactly how this finishes for us. That's what we're going to focus on today. Um, I want to review, because we, we're at our second of our three-part series of Jude. So I just want to go back over the first section and talk through some of the things that we talked about last week for the sake of continuity and refreshment. Uh, last week, we talked in Jude 1 through 7. We acknowledge that Jude is a letter that is written to the victims of the attacks of false teachers in the church. We examined who these false teachers are. We take special note that they are consciously lying and deceiving. They know what they're doing. It's on purpose. They know they're trying to be sneaky about it. Their moves are calculated. They are not genuine believers of Christ. They are not just accidentally Lying they're, It's not in good faith, right? It's in bad faith. They know the evil that they're doing. Um, also, uh, the fact that they're non, not genuine believers is illustrated or exposed by the fact that they, have, they will eventually have gone to great lengths to justify blatant sin. Uh, we also see that Jude doesn't address those false teachers directly at any point in this letter. Instead, he's just assuring you and me that God is going to make them pay for that, for their blasphemy. He's going to punish them. He is going to judge them. And we see that heavy in our passage today as well. So that's going to continue continue on for us. And we concluded that Jude calls us not to live as casualties of war, But as contenders for the faith. And that we do that not by dismissing our pain or pretending like that attack never happened, that that those hardships never happened, but by empowering us in that to take a stand against attack. And so we started a list that we're gonna continue today a list of action points that a contender for the faith, like you and me, is gonna do to stand up against attack. The first, we trust the gospel. We believe it first. We don't let it be called into question. We trust what the word says to us, that, that Jesus is real and that everything the Bible says about him is true. We take faith in that. Uh, the second action point is we speak up and we speak out. I think last week I used the phrase, face the offense. I like this one better, so I'm going to change it today. Speak up and speak out. And we put two names up on the, uh, um, on the projector, Ben Mangrich and Rachel Varghese, as people that if you found yourself at any point, in any, in any way feeling like you have been come under attack or you've been victimized by somebody in the context of church and you, you need somebody to stand with you in that, you need to talk about that, I want to encourage you to do that. So I just want to reiterate the fact that that, that invitation has no expiration date, that you are welcome to approach Ben or Rachel or anyone in the leadership of church or somebody that you can trust to express what you've experienced so that you are not alone in that. We don't want you to sit with that alone. So that's all. That all came last week and then today we're going to pick up at verse 8. I want to read these, these first three verses again for you, okay? Starting verse 8 and then 9 and 10. says, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Just to pause on this verse for a second. I think this is a really interesting one because it gives us a little more insight in what the false teaching was here. The idea of blaspheming, a lot of times, like, it's got some different contextual meanings, but in this case, especially when they're talking about blaspheming the glorious ones, and in the context, talking about how, Um, using dreams to defile the flesh. What's probably almost certainly going on is these false teachers are claiming that in some sort of dream or vision, an angel came to them and told them that this authoritative thing, that this, this sin or whatever they're doing is totally justifiable. In fact, they need to be doing this. And even though Jesus taught against it, that doesn't matter anymore because this this authoritative dream came to me and said that you now have permission to do this, right? Changing the teaching of Jesus and claiming that um, by lying, claiming that you've been given authority to be able to make this decision. Like that would be blaspheming because it's, it's lying about Jesus. It's justifying sin and, and uh, yeah, contradicting what Jesus said about sin. And it's also misstating or even lying about who told you and saying that angels said this when they didn't say that, that's essentially blaspheming them. And so it's a weird and very egregious thing to do. I think that's insightful, just just to give us an understanding of some of the things that were coming up in that context. Um, Continuing on in verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So there's uh, this reference to the archangel Michael and in a dispute with the devil over the body of Moses. If you've read your Bible carefully, you may have picked up on the fact that that's not in your Bible. Um, This is a reference to a different book called First Enoch, and we're going to see that referenced again. Um, And there's actually a few different times that Jude references to a different book that is not in the Bible. You might have picked up, uh, if you read verse 6 previously, uh, it says, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, um, he has kept an eternal chains." That also is a story that isn't laid out, Clearly in Scripture, but it is laid out in oh, sorry, yeah, in uh, in the book of First Enoch. In fact, sorry, let me also clarify that. Uh, um, the dispute between Michael and Angel—that's from a book called The Assumption of Moses—and so the angel's story—that's from First Enoch. Um, and so, like, there's these references, and we call them pseudepigraphal references. That is, they are there are writings that were not included in the canon or what we know as Scripture, the Bible, uh, but they still held traditional significance. They still held contextual significance, historical significance. Like there were writings that were known, that were respected, even if they didn't make it into the Bible. And there might have been any number of reasons that they didn't. But they, but they still were known. And they were still used as resources from time to time. So it's really simple that Jude is just using this as a resource. These, he's referring to these other, um, these other things, not to make them, to claim them as Scripture themselves, but to use them as a resource because he knows that this is familiar, right? This is a letter from a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians. And these are, these pseudepigraphal references are, these writings are, or things that would have been significant to them, familiar to them. And so referring to those stories would have helped them understand his point even more. That's what he's doing. So he he uses those a fair amount. Um, And he does it, again, we'll see in uh, verses 14 and 15. It was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict ungodly in all their deeds. Again, like referring to Enoch. So there's other books in the Bible that do this that re- reference some writing that's not a part of Scripture but use it to help explain their point. Um, and, uh, and it's simply a tool that, that Jude uses to, to speed on. But what's interesting too is what, he's, what he is doing and I, um, I think this is, like, this is what I want to camp out on. Um, he's referencing angels. He's referencing demons. He's rep- uh, referencing cosmic battles. Uh, Because when Jude is talking about false teaching in the church, what he's doing is he's pointing to a bigger picture. He sees attack on the church and he sees the attacks of false teachers, not just as evil people on their own doing their own thing. He sees these attacks as spiritual warfare. This is bigger than you and me. This is something happening on a larger scale. And Jude wants to point that when we experience attack, attacks, that it's a part of something, a much bigger war going on. And so I want to talk about that. I think it's worth talking about spiritual warfare for us as a church and just examine that topic a little bit. I'm a, I work for an organization called Rain Ministries, R-E-I-G-N, like King Reigns, not like Purple Rain. Like, and I... Um, I it's a, it's a missions organization, and my wife worked there for a while. Uh, we, our job is we plan, we prepare, we lead short-term mission trips. That's our whole gig, all year round. Like most of the traveling we do is in the summertime, that's when we spend our time overseas. And we do that um, for a couple of goals here. We want to uh, disciple students, high school students, college students, and train and equip them for ministry, and, and especially in the context of missions, and give them that experience. And we also, we want, to, we want to help bring the gospel to the nations. So we love the opportunity to be able to do that, that we get to do, be a part of a ministry where we get to travel overseas and uh, you know, cross borders, cross cultures, and take students with us and go experience ministry and go practice ministry um, and see what God has to teach us in that. Uh, but something that comes up, and I, I say like the, probably two of the countries that I've, I've had the privilege of spending the most time in outside of America is Morocco and Nepal. And they're really interesting places to go to ministry. They're very unique. Their cultures are very their own. Um, and one of the things that happens that we encounter in these particular countries, and for a number of reasons that would take me all day to kind of like, or I, I'd love to spend all day talking about, but, um, but these are places that we see spiritual warfare happen in a different way than when we see it here. And I have that, I find myself in the responsibility of having to walk through that with students teenagers, college students who are experiencing this for the first time as they know it or as they realize and are trying to understand and process this stuff. And there's a lot of things that happen that I don't even understand. But uh, And over the years, I've had to kind of learn some important lessons. Um, and one of the important lessons that I've had to learn in that is to be a little bit quicker to admit that this is spiritual warfare. Because I tend to be a skeptic. I tend to be like a... Yeah, this, it's just bad luck, you know. It's just it's just a ba- bunch of things going on. It doesn't it's not but what often happens is I'll I'll drag my feet out until finally I'm forced to admit there's something bigger happening here. This is attack. And I found that Bethany and I in our marriage and our ministry and our lives have found that happened to us not just overseas but at home too. Or uh, yeah, in the, in the context of our lives where we've, we've had these times where a bunch of things go wrong that we can't quite explain. And it's a series of events and they don't seem very related or there just seems to be something that keeps bringing us down or tripping us up. And it can last for a day or a week or a month or more. Um, and we just like, find ourselves just battling the same things over again or battling different things and feeling bogged down until one of us eventually finally brings it up and says, is there any chance that this could be, you know, spiritual attack? And then the other person is usually like, oh, yeah. Why didn't I think, it? yeah, that, it, that, that, that would help me understand what's going on here. So I, like, it's just this thing that I've like, have grown in my sensitivity towards. And I think it's important that, uh, that we sometimes bring it out in the open and just call it what it is and acknowledge that it's real. And as Jude says, that when we, the church is attacked, that's, it's warfare. And we've got we to be able to say that. I want to read uh, a quote from you, or for, for you, uh, from a very famous theologian Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his very famous theological book, Systematic Theology, I came across this this week and I thought this was really helpful. The quote says, there's no reason to think that there's any less demonic activity in the world today than there was at the time of the New Testament. We are in the same period, in God's overall plan for history, and the millennium has not yet come when Satan's influence will be removed from the earth. Much of our Western secularized society is unwilling to admit the existence of demons, except perhaps in primitive societies, quote-unquote primitive, and relegates all talk of demonic activity to a category of superstition. But unwillingness of modern society to recognize the presence of demonic activity today is from a biblical perspective simply due to people's blindness to the nature of reality. So spiritual warfare is real. It's present. Satan exists. His goal is and always has been to wage war on God in hopes of claiming God's kingdom for himself and to thwart God's plan for redemption. He attacks us because he wants to hurt and weaken God. Satan is invested in our demise. He's pursuing you because abandoning your faith Grieves God and impacts His kingdom, but we also need to know this about Satan: His power is limited to that of a fallen angel. He has no power over your will. Satan cannot force you to sin. He can tempt you, um, but sinning is an act of will, and so are always. So we are always responsible. For our sin and obedience. Some of the things that we know and believe about demonic activity and Satan actually come from other pseudepigraphal references, some other books, because and and like Jude points out, like because they're not expanded on in the Bible. So we know we know from the Bible that uh, demons and Satan they originate from fallen angels, and there's references in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Second Peter, and here in Jude to to confirm that for us. We don't know when and exactly how that happened. It's believed that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, creation and fall, that there was a rebellion against God in the angelic world. Satan himself, the leader and demons, they, uh, yeah, they, they fell from heaven in a dispute with God um, in wanting to challenge God's authority. And ever since, the goal has been to continue to do that. So, Satan is real, demons are real. His power is limited to that of a fallen angel. He is not, uh, you know, omnipotent. He doesn't have all the power, doesn't have anything even close to the power of God. Attacks can come in different forms, and I would even suggest that in the context that we live in, we're probably most likely to see it in some of the most innocuous ways. That can be forms of temptation to sin. Distractions from worshiping God. False teachings about Jesus and what obedience to him means. And experiences that would sow doubt about God's faithfulness to you. Now, I would suggest, and this is not, this is not only me, because I've, I've had a conversation with other leaders uh, at EBF and who have kind of confirmed this belief, that EBF has had a rough Last year, two, three years, right? It's been rocky for us for a number of reasons. And and in a sense, a lot of reasons that don't all seem to connect or make sense. It's not been an easy go in recent history for EBF. And we're still trying to work, work our way through that. I believe God is faithful. And I believe that there's not a clean, simple explanation or resolution to anything we've seen some things. We've seen a lot of confusion. We've seen some conflict. We've seen staff departures. We've seen, you know, disappointing news, heartache. We've seen complacency uh, in our faith sometimes. We've seen surges in health problems. We've seen so many different things happen and it kind of feels like, man, it's piling up sometimes, right? Man, this is a lot. And I want to suggest that I think that this isn't a thorough explanation of everything, but I believe we've been under attack. I believe we have been attacked and that that there's spiritual warfare going on because we're a church that exalts the name of Jesus, that we represent the gospel, we worship Christ, and there's a lot to be gained for Satan from our demise, at least in his eyes. And that, again... We are still responsible for our actions, so it doesn't mean that anybody is not responsible for any mistakes that they've made, for any wrongdoing that they've done, for any failures or, you know, poor judgment, or anything like that. And it doesn't necessarily dismiss anything like that's going on. I don't think this is one clean blanket statement to answer all of our problems, but I think it, it's a common thread among everything. I think we're a church who have found ourselves maybe under more attack than we, we even realized. But with that, let's remind ourselves of of some really important things. First, when we say spiritual warfare, the war is not between us and Satan. We may come under attack, and we do, but this is not a battle between us and Satan. It is between God and Satan. Satan thinks if he can weaken us, he can get to God. But this is not about Satan attacking us and us waging war against Satan. This is not our war. This is God's war with Satan. And with that, the, the even better news is that we don't have to worry because not only is this not our war, it's God's, but the victory has already been secured. Satan just wants, doesn't want to admit it or whatever But Satan wants you to feel defeated. He wants you to feel like you're a casualty of war and that God has left you behind. He wants you to get wrapped up in the problems and not see the bigger picture that the victory has already been won. Satan has already been defeated once and for all. God sees you as part of the victory. God sees you not as a casualty of war but as a contender for the faith. And you also need to know in case you don't, that God has given you power over demons to be able to reject them and even to command them to stop or leave. That power is not separate or distinct from God's power. So it's still God's power, never ours, that's combating evil, but he has equipped you with the ability to reject Satan and attack attack from him. So then, And that ties in with the story of the archangel Michael who made a point to rebuke Satan, but not rebuke Satan in the name of the Lord, but to sort of hand it off to God to recognize that it was by God's authority that Satan is judged. By, By God's authority, Satan is rebuked. By God's authority, Satan will be judged by God, not us, which means we don't have the power to destroy Satan. We don't have the power to condemn him, but we still have the power to reject him. And in Jude fourteen and fifteen, as it talks more from Enoch, it talks about, "Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of holy ones of His holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict us all of the ungodly and all their deeds and ungodliness." Um, we're reminded that again that God is bringing His judgment on these false teachers, on these attackers. He is bringing His judgment on them he's bringing his power into it he is the conqueror and he will condemn them he will handle them for us along with the biggest false teacher of all that's good news to us we're not left to fight for ourselves justice is coming god is going to crush the attackers Thanks for bearing with me on that. Let's review, all right, our actions for a contender of faith. Trust the gospel, speak up and speak out, and now I'm going to add a third to our list today, okay? The third is claim victory in Christ. That contender for the faith it will trust the gospel, will speak up and speak out about the lies that they see and the damage they see being done, and they will claim victory in Christ. I'm going to throw a bunch of scripture at you. Buckle up. A bunch of scripture, all right? Here it comes. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Hebrews 2, 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, 1 Corinthians ten three through 5 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Verse John 4, 2-4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, Is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. Revelations nineteen one through three. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute for corrupting the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more, they cried out, "Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever." He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The evil one wants you to forget all of that and panic. Freak out. Worry about this right now. Lose perspective that the victory in Christ has been won decisively. We know how this story ends. Carnage there may be, we know how this resolves. God is making all things new. He's not going to fail at. Satan wants you to get swept under the drama, in the moment and lose sight of how this all ends. The victory has been won and you are not a casualty of war you are a contender for the faith. You've got to claim that victory. Do you know that you can straight up tell the devil that he has no right? He has no right to your thoughts. He has no right to stake a claim in your church. He has no right to invade your family. He has no right inside your home. He has no right to accuse you of being a failure. He has no right to coerce you into sin. He has no right to lie to you about Jesus. He has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Satan has no place here. Satan, back off, yeah? Amen. You are not a casualty of war. You are a contender for the faith. Trust the gospel. Speak up against the lies. Claim victory in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray the words of Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. God, we know that because you called us your sons and your daughters, you have given us a secure destiny. You are the powerful one and you have used that to empower us to be contenders for the faith. Make us bold, God, and fearless against the attack. Teach us not to flinch or back down. Remind us that you have given us a spirit of fear, not of love, not, of, not a, a spirit not of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. And we know all of that comes from you. God, we trust you we have faith in you, and we, we, we believe in your word, and we trust that you will lead us. We pray this for ourselves and for our church. In Jesus' name, amen.